Welcome back to Lost in Citations. Today's guest is Kate Mayer, an associate professor of English at Kyoto University of Foreign Studies. Almost Dr. Mayer, welcome back to Lost in Citations. <laughs> Hello, Jonathan. Thank you so much for having me back on. It is nice to talk with you again for people that are just catching the show now. Please go back and listen to Citation 39, the first interview with Kate, and also Citation 56, where Kate was a contributing interviewer. Thank you, Kate. And you interviewed your colleague, Neil Curry. So,、uh, lots of content for people to listen to. It's been a while since we spoke. Can you give an update on the PhD? Is there a light at the end of the tunnel? <laughs> I'm in an optimistic mood today. So, yes, there is. I'm in the writing up stage at last.、Um, just as my lovely supervisor, Jim King, keeps telling me, just got to do it. You just got to knuckle down and write it. Like, the tendency is, and you'll probably find this, is you just want to keep reading because I should really check if something new's come out on this, or I should read that again to make sure I really understand it. And then, kind of, Jim's voice kicks in. It's like, no, just write it. <laughs>、mm. I always think about Jim King's,、uh, Dr. Jim King, sorry.、Um, I know you corrected me on that multiple times in that first interview. I kept calling him Jim, <laughs> and you seemed shocked with your British sensibilities. <laughs> Dr. King? Uh, um, his PhD project was just so ambitious. That's, that's another one people would like to go back and listen to Citation 27 with Dr. Jim King, where he recorded 900 hours of, cl- of Japanese classroom interactions.、Um, that guy earned his PhD, that's for sure. Absolutely. It's an immense study and it, it's, it's hugely influential in our field, especially, isn't it? Yeah. So, what, when is. When is the deadline, so to speak, for this PhD, or when do you envision yourself finishing? I would like to get it done the end of this summer. Wow. Yeah. Because, you know, the way、um, Jim, Dr. King, has kind of set me up with working on it is I got a lot of the writing done in early. So I'm really just editing and polishing what I've done. So. Fingers crossed. How many, how many words? I'm, I'm at 100,000 ish.、Mm. Um, so it's really just editing it down to the, to the 80,000. And, and your program, can you refresh my memory? Is this, is this a publication based degree? For example, you, you, you're, You're required to publish four or five journal articles within that thesis, or it's the thesis based degree, and you have the option to break that up into journal articles because you've been publishing a lot recently. <laughs> oh, thank you.、Um, it's the thesis based one. So,、um, yeah, I use my PhD data、um, to try and get some articles and book chapters out there. So, yeah. How have you been organizing that? How, how have you been thinking about that? I mean, for, for the audience and, and for me, did you have one big data collection or multiple data collections? And how did you think about organizing them into different papers? Because that's something I think about a lot. Yeah.、Um, I've got three stages in my PhD. So the first stage was all about. Observing students in the classroom,、um, looking at how they behaved, how they interacted, and then doing follow up interviews to ask them about how they behaved. So, in a way, it was a kind of mini version of what Dr. King did in、mm-hmm. his、um, PhD. So, going in and observing、um, silent behaviors. And the reason I wanted to do this was because as A full time language teacher, you know, you're going, I was going into this project with a lot of assumptions and bias.、Mm. Um, so, I, even though I'm technically observing every day、um, at work, you know, I wanted to go in and just, you know, really observe, really look, and then ask students, you know, how did you feel when you were doing that speaking activity? What were you thinking about? How was that for you? So, that was the first stage. And then the second stage, I recruited、um, 
students to take part in a project um if they you know students that were anxious about speaking in class I didn't put it to them like that I asked you know if they wanted more confidence to speak in class and then I used um these CBT style interviews to do some multiple in-depth interviews with them to find out how they felt about speaking in class what affected their um verbal participation what hold on what made them silent what led to them feeling inhibited to speak and then the third stage based on all that data I'd collected I developed some CBT style workshops for so I gathered a small number of students that wanted to increase their confidence and uh, created eight different workshops using CBT as a base to help them kind of reframe, um, look at their silent behaviors and just become more balanced in their thinking, more objective in their thinking about how they participate in class. Not positive thinking as such. I mean, it the intent, they were very negative in the way they perceived how they spoke in class or participated, but not just, you know, oh, be positive, don't be shy. Like, I wanted to avoid that. I was trying to have more balance, you know. Mm. Okay, I didn't get out what I wanted to say today, but I said something, and therefore the next class I'm going to build on that and keep trying. Um so, yeah, that was the three stages. So observation, in-depth interviews, and then using all that data to create some kind of informed intervention. I see. All right. So the paper that we're going to be discussing today is from the very first volume of the new journal of Silence Studies in Education. And the name of the article is Reframing Silence insights into language learners thoughts about silence and speaking related anxiety and from what you just said uh the the data from this paper came from phase two of your phd yes got That's it right. yeah um all right and before we get into the meat of the paper uh you have another project coming up which is a a book on foreign language anxiety activities can you talk a little bit about that yes so um in the last time I was on the show, when I interviewed my colleague and friend, Neil Curry, um, so he introduced me or got me really into the CBT-based approach. And after working with him for a few years now, we decided that we, we've we collected a lot of data and we wanted to do something practical with it. Um, so we wanted to write a handbook of psychology-based activities for supporting students that feel anxious to speak in class. Mm -hmm. um, we wanted to write it ourselves, but we decided that probably wasn't the best idea. <laughs> so we recruited um, lots of experts in our field, including you. I don't know if I'm an expert, but I'm happy to be involved. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, we wanted to, you know, we want to... You, all this theory that we're researching and studying, we wanted to make it, you know, into a practical package. You know, how can we start applying it? And when we read a lot of the papers out there, you know, there's so many good theories and approaches going on, but sometimes it's hard to translate that into an actual activity to take with you into the classroom, mm. um, unless you're like me and the PhD is based on it. Um, so I wanted to create, yeah, a handbook, a kind of something teachers can have next to them when they're planning classes, you know, uh, this class, they seem a bit quiet, perhaps they need some support, or it could be for an individual student. Um, and yeah, we're kind of following this, this idea of psychology based approaches so neil and i are looking at cbt based approaches other people are looking at um visualization techniques relaxation techniques um flow theory as well and of course yours is kind of a innovative way to kind of assess 
get students to assess how they feel and teachers can also kind of find out more as well right that's that's an exciting book i'm I'm excited to to read that um now you mentioned cognitive behavioral therapy or cbt or cognitive behavioral models Mm. from jim king a lot in your work and in your work with with neil and i thought it'd be kind of a fun exercise uh, before we get into the paper, which again, you use some of these practices and theories in the paper, mm-hmm. I thought it'd be a good way to sort of show people kind of the practice or theory behind what you do or the idea of CBT. Uh, what, do you, what do you think about that? <laughs> um, absolutely. I'll just clarify very strongly that I'm not advertising myself as a CBT therapist. My best friend would kill me if I did that. She is a CBT therapist. (laughs) Yeah. So this is just an exercise to kind of show the cycle that, you know, soon to be Dr. Mayer might, might work with, you know, a student or some of the, just, just, I thought it's a good way to sort of bring the the whole thing to life. Mm, So, so, all right. So maybe like a lot of people during the, you know, the Christmas New Year's holiday season, do a bit of overindulgence of alcohol. Mm-hmm. And I myself uh, did that as well. And so for the past week, I've decided to take a break. And mm-hmm. I wanted to take a break from drinking. And, and during this this week, I've had some opportunity to reflect on maybe why I drink or I've just been thinking about it a lot. So I thought It'd be kind of fun because instead of posing the question to your students, you know, for example, why are you anxious in class? Mm. Maybe we could flip it to, you know, something based around drinking. And then we can use some of these techniques to do some brainstorming and see if some some of these ideas can give me some insight um, as I'm reflecting on this sort of dry period. So what do, what do you think about that? Does, can that work? Gotcha. I mean, as long as you're okay to go a little deep i'm ready i'm ready (laughs) (laughs) yeah let's try it um now by the way anything anything that i say yeah um uh cannot be used against me in a court of law i'm just saying (laughs) (laughs) what's the opposite of the miranda right (laughs) all right gotcha gotcha yeah yeah Yep. All right. And L, whatever I say cannot be used against me in a um, maybe a, a future interview. Yes, I think that that's a good disclaimer. We'll put that right there. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, well, we'll keep it light because obviously, as well, I think that's really important to say is when you're using psychology-based approaches in the classroom. You know, as a teacher, we are not a therapist. We're not a counselor. We're not there to do that. Students and not expecting that from us and it's not our position to offer that type of support but when we use these approaches you know there a lot of it we're doing in the classroom anyway like as you said reflecting like getting students to reflect on what they're doing and why um so i you know i think when some people think or read about these types of approaches they feel concerned to try it themselves because like well I'm not a therapist I'm not a counselor and that's not what it's about at all in this case with CBT um the real benefit of using this approach with language learners is it the, the heart of it is having a goal a behavioral goal um so it could be to improve speaking confidence or in your case a uh, little bit less drinking yeah Okay, shall we shall we have a little try? Yeah, let's do it. I'm excited. Okay, okay. <laughs> I'm excited and nervous. All right. <laughs> but what you said is is the reason why I want to do it because when you're reading a paper like this and you read cognitive behavioral model, yeah. that sounds pretty intimidating. Yeah, um, it does. And you know, with the students, what you got to do is just break it down and show them how, like, the basic of the CBT cycle works, which is your thoughts, your feelings, and your behaviors, like what you think, what you feel, what Mm. you do. And when you draw that in a cycle on the board, and for example, you say like, you make a mistake. Mm -hmm. And like, well, how, what do you think about that? And they're like, oh, I feel really stupid. What, you know, I'm, I can't speak English. And then how does that make you feel? I feel sad. I feel disappointed. 
I lose my confidence. And then what do you do? Well, I don't speak anymore in that class. And then how does that make, what do you think about that? And then you, you can get them to see this cycle of how it just goes around and around and around. Because when you don't speak, you start thinking negatively, like, oh, see, I can't speak. I'm not speaking, so I can't speak. And then that makes them feel more negatively. And, and then again, they might speak less. And it just goes on and on and on. And it's very hard to break that cycle. Um, so when I use this approach in class, I get that on the board and I do lots of examples and they can see how much their thoughts influence them. Mm. Um, and I would imagine it's the same with your wanting to reduce your drinking. Well, and then also that maybe you can just mention before we get into this uh, exercise, um, the reframing exercise. Yeah, reframing is this idea of in its essence, it's just getting to be a bit more balanced in their thinking about what they're doing. Um, often, you know, students are very negative. They've got this negative bias of what they're doing, especially if they're anxious speakers. You know, they can do the perfect performance, for example, a presentation, and afterwards they'll still pick it apart of what was not good enough. Right. Um, so getting to them to kind of reframe in a more objective, balanced way. Like, as again, it's not, you know, oh, just be positive. You know, you did a great job. You tried. It's this idea that, okay, so you weren't quite happy with this part, but this worked. Or you weren't, you know, perhaps you couldn't respond to that question from your teacher as quickly as you wanted to. But you did produce a whole sentence. Well, and then another example, I think, I think from this paper, I've read a, a lot of your papers, was someone saying, <laughs> well, I said something and then the other person didn't respond. And mm. then you said, well, how did that make you feel? It's like, well, the, you know, what I said was, you know, wasn't interesting or the person was bored mm. or the person didn't want to talk to me. And then you said, well, let's reframe that. Is there another possible reason? You know, yes. was the person tired or... Yeah. Was the person struggling themselves to speak or again, yeah. like you said, make it sort of a more balanced objective, taking your, taking yourself out of the situation, looking at it as a third party observer. Exactly. Just getting them to consider other possible alternatives to what they're thinking. It's not forcing them to believe that everything is going to be fine in class because it's not you know, negative things are going to happen. Um, they are going to make a mistake and perhaps a, a teacher will criticize them or perhaps a peer will laugh. You can't prevent all that. So you've got to help them develop some resilience. Mm -hmm. And I think that, you know, getting them to reframe things um, can be a big help to some students. Right. All right. So with all that in mind, uh, we're going to we're going to reframe the CBD approach <laughs> instead of uh, why are you anxious in class to why do you drink? Is that what we're going to do? Well, we'll do a, yeah, we'll do a version of that. We'll see how it goes. Let's find out um, right. about your drinking. All right, let's strap in. <laughs> do you need a safe word? <laughs> drink. Oh, wait, no, no, that's not going to work. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, <laughs> no, we won't. We won't go there. Okay, so um, well, the first step we need to kind of do is um, think of some situations where perhaps you want to stop drinking, or things that make you want to have a drink, and you'd rather that those situations didn't cause you to want to have a drink. Okay, so maybe I just go through the list I have of reasons I want to drink. Okay. And then I'll then then I need to think and answer the second part of your question. Okay. Okay, so reasons why I want to drink. Um let's see. One could be boredom mm -hmm. or uh I call it a content enhancer. So for example, watching a movie or listening to a radio show seems to be more interesting. When I know, it's probably not. <laughs> um, 
a signal to the end of the workday. Mm. So, for example, you know, in our job, we're we're thinking a lot, right? We're planning, we're thinking, and it's a signal to my brain. Okay, no more critical thinking, and the alcohol does help because when you start drinking, it's harder to do critical thinking. You're not going to sit down and write an essay, right? Mm. No. Uh, another one is a reward. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, oh, you worked really hard today. Oh, you finished uh, this paper, or you did this. So, that, have a beer as a reward. Mm. Um, another one I would say is trying to dull my—I don't know—quote unquote real personality by trying to adapt to living in a Japanese society, where mm. it's sometimes that's hard for me to do. Where you just need to accept things that you, you know, there's certain things that are the way they are and that you can't do anything about it. So, all right, I'll just have a drink. (laughs) (laughs) Um, uh, Another one is to dole an accumulation of stress throughout the day. Yes. Whether it's interactions with people or, you know, something at work or frustration with my own life or it's just, and so for example, right now I'm not doing a lot of teaching so this is – it's actually a much easier time to take a break from drinking because I have a lot less interaction. Mm-hmm. That being said, during uh, the COVID era uh, where there was the same sort of thing, a lot less interaction, I think I was probably drinking more just because I was bored. So uh, – and then – all right, last thing. Sorry, I'm kind of rambling here. Uh, <laughs> last thing are like triggers. Right. So I like to drink when I cook. I like to drink at a barbecue. I like to drink when I go out to dinner. Um, kind of ironic, just on a side note, um, I was I was researching uh, liver cleanses and th- there was all these, you know, drinks that you could make with like beet, root, beet, beet, red beets and stuff. And you, you can't really get red beets in Japan, I don't think. So I went to the store and I found this, this, this sort of fruit drink that kind of matched all the ingredients in a liver cleanse. I took a sip of this li- liver cleanse and I said, this would taste great with vodka. I mean, this would be a great Bloody Mary. So I don't know if that's a trigger, uh, which is kind of ironic. Um, all right. What was the second part of your question? Um, well, okay. Let's um, let's pause this. We've got a lot of situations where we can focus on, um, and you've got to think the big behavioral goal is perhaps you know we want to or you want to reduce your urge to drink, right? And we've got some situations where the urges come up. So, which one would you say is either the the strongest that has the most influence on you or perhaps the one you'd really like to have under more control? I think the one to dull the accumulation of stress throughout the day. Right. Okay. Um, So then let's say in the past week, as recent as possible, um, can you give us an example of that situation? Absolutely. Uh, so I had to drive to the grocery store and I don't, I, there's a grocery store I love near my house. Mm-hmm. Um, but because I needed to get a lot of stuff, I drove. Okay. I don't like to drive too much because that's definitely something where I get annoyed. And I know that's sort of my problem. Now in Japan, everyone backs into parking spots, Yeah. which is fine. I, I, I get it. That's how people are taught to do it. But I also know this, I don't know where you live, but Everyone has these big vans, these yeah. these huge, you know, I don't know what, they're they're like buses almost, miniature buses for a family of four. Tanks. Yeah, they're huge. Yeah. They're everywhere. And the, the roads in Japan are, can be very narrow. But anyway, so I'm, I go into the parking lot and almost all of the spots are full. And I thought, oh, that's weird. And then, and I, I, I found a spot and so that was a little bit annoying. Um, that, that was just kind of one thing. I, I went, I... When you're in the grocery store, it seems – I don't know if this happens to you. It feels like people are – there's a magnet to me where they're either walking in front of me, moving in front of me. They're standing in front of the you know the apple I want to buy. Again, this is my perception. So th- th- it's accumulating some stress. And then I get to the car. I like, oh, phew, that's done. Um, and then there's also the compounded stress of being a foreigner in Japan where you just feel like you're an outsider and people are staring at you and that kind of stuff. Anyway, so then I'm in the car, I'm, I get back in the parking lot, I'm starting to drive out and there's this guy, there's a sort of an island of cars and then he's trying to park in this, this other section. So there's a, there's a bit of a window for me to get through, but it's not big enough for my car to get through. And he's just kind of there in the middle of the, the space. 
And if he just backed up, I could see that he could just back perfectly into the spot. He was lined up correctly. I don't know if he was going through some sort of midlife, mid-parking crisis, <laughs> but he just was stopped there. Yeah. And I stared at him and then he stared at me and then he kind of looked ahead implying, oh, it's okay for you to move forward. And I looked back at him and I said, no, it's not okay for me to move forward. And then he just sort of froze again and then he pulled in front of me just to to readjust, which I thought that's what he was going to do, right? Mm -hmm. And he goes real slow in front of me and then he backs up real slow and I just and I just drove by him and I just stared at him right in the eyes. And I just, I just, and I just so much disdain for no, for like, no, it's not, no, there's no reason I should separate my emotions from, but anyway, that's an example. Now there was just one of those yesterday. Mm -hmm. Um, so I didn't, it wasn't enough for me to really, to get a drink, but if, if I had 20 of those in a day, Mm -hmm. um, that, that would, that, I don't know. Did that answer your question? I think you've given a very, um, detailed overview of the situation there and there's lots we could pick out from that um so i think we need to do is then we've got the situation a the annoying driver we'll we'll go with that we'll go with that part uh something i could very much sympathize with um we've got your feelings there a lot of frustration um and I'll keep it polite, frustration. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, um, and what did you do after that? Did you have a drink or did what, what did you do after that? Um, I, didn't, I didn't have a drink because I, I'm, I'm sort of weighing the pros and cons of drinking. And I think this is a good time to take a break from drinking. Mm-hmm. But I did reflect that if those if those incidents accumulated mm. it might lead me to to get a drink because i'm afraid if those incidents it feels like the drink mm-hmm. stops the accumulation process it's like a refresh okay and i don't so, know if that's true or not but it feels like that where if you don't have a drink then mm. do these things continually now that being said the next day i think i was refreshed i i didn't really think about it too much till you brought it up and now all that anger is coming back over me again. No, I'm sorry. I'm just kidding. <laughs> now I can blame you. I know. I was like, I didn't bring it up. Um, <laughs> um, so there we have, you know, we've got some of your thoughts there. You know, you're, this is what you're thinking about as you're reflecting on whether you have that drink or not. So, mm-hmm. you know, we've, we've got basically the cycle mapped out there, what you – the situation what you were thinking what you were feeling and what you did and in this case you you didn't have a drink um you you stopped yourself and you actually kind of reframed it for yourself there i think you know you you thought well you were by reflecting on it you looked at other alternatives um and you had control over your behavior you kept to your behavioral goal of not having the drink Mm. so in that case you know it's actually kind of a positive cycle because when you didn't have the drink, what did you think about then? Um, I just, I thought about tolerance Mm -hmm. and I thought I can't really pat myself on the back too much because I'm not in the same situation I was three weeks ago or I may be teaching four classes in a row, Mm. right? I got deadlines. I got stuff coming up. I got, I have a lot less stress right now. Mm -hmm. So it's easier I think the real challenge would be if I really wanted to drink, if I really wanted to stop drinking December 15th, mm. could I do it? Right. That's kind of, that's what I was thinking about. And does that worry you? Um, I think, I, I, I don't think I've come to a decision where I want to quit drinking. I just decided I want to take a break mm. and think about it. But I mean, does it worry you that perhaps if you were still doing your four classes in a row at the moment and feeling more stressed that it would be harder to achieve your behavioral goal? Yeah, that's an interesting question because December 15th, I didn't have this behavioral goal. I only had the behavioral goal after I thought I'd indulged too much Mm. during the holiday season. See, that's the thing though. That's a great question because maybe next 
the next December, mm. maybe I should try not to get into that spiral of of indulging too much. And I think that's where you got to, you know, you're you're noticing, um, like you mentioned before, the word triggers. You you're quite aware of where you where your triggers are, um, triggering situations that make it harder to achieve your behavioral goal, um, and those kind of negative feelings. And, you know, you've said here that you're kind of aware of perhaps what you could do to plan ahead for when that situation comes up again. Um, so if it was my students, if they've got an upcoming speaking evaluation, they'd be preparing for that. But in your case, you'd be preparing for when you feel that kind of wave of stress or when you have got classes. And that could be a time that you need to really work hard on your behavioral goal and, you know, keep kind of this reframing making sure you reframe so for example this incident with the driver you mentioned a lot of things of being a foreigner in japan mm. so perhaps that's something you need to break down more into the cycle is that you know that's what perhaps you should work on reframing like where's that coming from why is that um because that could be a one of the underlying issues that not for everything related to when you feel stress or you want to have a drink, but it could be one of the underlying issues that becomes a trigger. Mm. And so becoming aware of that and reframing how you feel as a foreigner in Japan um, could be just, you know, one part of what you reflect on. Cool. <laughs> I like it. I think that sets a good context for the paper. You may now take a step off the sofa. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I mean, I, I wanted to do that because I, I kind of agree with what you said, that people read papers like this. Mm. And again, and you go out of your way to say, look, I'm not a therapist. This is not our job to be a therapist. Mm. But it's hard not to think like that when you're reading a paper that's talking about psychological interventions. Yeah, it is. Um, but I don't know if I really did a good job there because I've never had to do it with the topic of alcohol before. <laughs> but is you focusing on worries about speaking or you know making mistakes in class? But or... it, it's interesting because your or the, you know your line of research or the way I think about it, I look at it kind of the same way where you need to step outside of the situation. Yes. So, so in your mind, you're, or in, in your train of thought, you're you're, think, you're saying, let's think about this objectively. Let's let's actually reframe it. And my point of view is, okay, well, you're self-rating your anxiety. Mm. Um, if you're self-rating your own anxiety, my hypothesis, which I've yet to prove, is that actually can can calm yourself down because you're looking at yourself more. You're not you're not rating yourself. You're rating your own level of anxiety. Mm. Um. So it's it's interesting. I think I think the, the whole idea is if you get into your own head too much, and especially if you're tainting everything or everything to the negative side, uh, if you're leaning everything to the negative side, you can kind of spiral out of control, Absolutely. and this can help you come back to the center. Yeah, and I mean, again, um, with this type of approach, it's it's not for all students. It doesn't work for everybody. You know, CBT doesn't work for everybody outside of the language classroom in a, more of a therapy situation. But I think that, you know, especially with your research, um, being aware of when you are anxious and knowing that it's anxiety and not, say, something is wrong with you or the situation, it's a moment you feel anxious and it's probably being caused by the fact that you're worried about speaking. And if you start to become aware of what is causing that to happen, you can just feel more in control of it. And a big part of that is just being able to monitor your thoughts. Um, not, yeah, I see not going down too deeply, but having that awareness that, oh, you know, my hands are sweating at the moment oh, maybe it's because I'm waiting for the teacher to ask me a question. Um, or I'm going to say it wrong or my peers are going to laugh. And like, no, no, stop. Um, that could happen, but I could also do 
it successfully and you know if my peer laughs maybe they're just looking at something funny on their smartphone like that mm. all right so let's get into the paper it is reframing silence insights into language learners thoughts about silence and speaking related anxiety again this is the journal of silence studies in education uh volume one number one and the uh, the leader of this journal is dat bow who uh, I've also interviewed on this podcast. Um, I did not write down the citation, but if you just go to lostincitations.com and to the guest profile, you will find Dat Bao. I think Seiko Harumi is also on the editorial board of this paper, uh, this journal, I'm sorry. So um, this journal is right up my alley. I think I'm going to be submitting a, a paper for this journal this year. So how did you hear about this journal? Again, my lovely supervisor, Dr. Jim King, he is also involved with it. And he recommended that I um, send something off to that bow and see if I could get included in the first issue, which I was very, very lucky to do so. Okay. So um, can you set up the background of the paper? I, I think I mentioned it briefly. This, this is a data set within the second phase of your PhD? That's right. Yes. So when I was doing the multiple in-depth interviews using this kind of CBT-based approach, um, I really noticed how a lot of the students who are anxious about speaking not just had a negative bias towards their speaking skills, but a negative bias towards their silent behaviors in class. Um, so I wanted to focus on that in this paper and this idea of, you know, because so much attention gets put on to verbal participation in language classes. Naturally, you know, it's understandable. Um, but students also have these worries about their silent behaviors. And I wanted to look at how they could kind of reframe those. Um, again, not to think more positively, but just to be a bit more balanced. Uh, yeah, you you have the question in the introduction, how do learners interpret their silence in relation to their language ability? Yes. And that's a great question. Yeah. And it often comes down to they just a huge amount of self-doubt about their linguistic ability. They just see, a lot of them see silence as evidence that they're not good at language learning or they're not good at speaking in the target language. They see it as confirming their fears, their worries. Well, that's the other thing. Like time is distorted when you're under stress. Yes. Right? So <laughs> as you've been in that situation before you're giving a presentation and your, your mind goes blank. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but even for one or two seconds. Yeah. But it but, feels like an eternity. But if you watch a... Uh, you know, a presentation with, with Steve Jobs. Um, I don't know if he integrated some of those motions where he's got his, you know, his hand on his chin or he's looking down as just a natural thing, but there are so many ways you can hide that. Yeah. That it's like, yeah. if you don't react to it, no one else is going to react to it. Right. So it's, yeah. I don't know if that's something you've also, you know, pursued in your research line is, you know, the interpretation of the length of their silence compared to reality. No, but that is something I am interested in doing in the future. Um, and actually, one of the reviewers of a previous article I wrote um, did suggest doing that. And I think that would be very interesting to do. Um, I had did have one student um, in participant in this data collection phase that um, he poured, he did this, he said it was this wonderful presentation. And then during the Q&A, a classmate asked him a question and he just couldn't come up with the answer. And he said that the silence must have been probably just a few seconds, but it felt like it was going on and on and on and on. And it, you know, and, and you're right, like it just distorts it and overwhelms them. And the more silent, the longer the, the silence goes on, the worse it gets. And they just, it's a kind of confirms, you know, oh, you're, you're rubbish at speaking or, and everybody's looking at me, um, all the attention's on me. Um, yeah, it, it just it triggers a lot of silence for people, and it just gives them a lot of self doubt about their linguistic ability. Yeah, that's interesting. In my in my presentation class, 
I teach um, the kids to automatically ask the person to to repeat the question mm. and then to confirm understanding. And yeah. I say, even if it's a question you definitely understand, it just gives you time to think of the answer. Yes. Yes. I've done that as well. I've, you know, giving them a technique mm. to fill that silence, but giving them a moment to pause and think. I always teach that to my students because it, it's very helpful. You know, when you do a conference presentation, you're like, that was a very insightful question. Thank you for that. And you're like, oh, am I going to say? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Right. I mean, we have the same problem in our native language, right? Absolutely. Um, and that's something I try to use um, with helping them to reframe their silences. Firstly, your peers probably didn't even notice. Secondly, your teacher probably didn't notice. Third, it was probably just a couple of seconds. It wasn't very long. And actually, being taking some pauses when you speak can have a very positive effect for the listener and how you come across because nobody wants, uh, you know, <laughs> kind of like, you know, mumbling constant you know speedy talker right so, i mean native yeah. speakers almost have the opposite problem where you say something that you shouldn't have said you step in yes. it and then you have a big oh <laughs> yeah. uh <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> maybe we it. should have been silent before we talked <laughs> yeah a pause would have been very beneficial there <laughs> a right. moment of thought before you came out with that um yeah and i try to remind them of that as well you know when you speak in your l1 in our context that would be Japanese you know um taking a pause is not a terrible thing no um you know we we do it then as well but when it because it's their l2 everything a lot of it's it feels unfamiliar it might not be a comfortable part of their identity yet so a pause can be so much more significant than the listener the audience would see it as but for them you know it, it can be a very significant and very affective moment for them it can cause a lot of negative emotions in the introduction and in the review of anxious language learners silence in the paper you cite is this a french person savi troik troik oh gosh <laughs> All right, well, just, well I'll edit that out. Done. No, I won't. But you will edit that out. That just is a proof that if you don't know the answer, you just say, I don't know. That's the yeah. I, that's the best three words. Anyway, you cite a person, Savi Troiki, 1985. Yeah. My, my question was, so this is the oldest citation in your paper. Yeah. What, do things always lead back to this person when it comes to silence? Or this paper? This, um, this chapter, it's a chapter in a book by Tannen and Savile Troike, Perspectives on Silence. It's... If you're interested in silence at all, it's just an incredible book hmm. to that opens your mind up about what silence is. Because um, I also talk about this anti-essentialist view um, that silence is not just the simple, it can't be simplified down to the opposite of speech. Mm -hmm. um, that's Jaworski's idea, you know, his way of, approaching silence this anti-essentialist approach and the several troike in tannen's book it just makes you look at silence in lots of different contexts and what it means in those different contexts and i always come back to using that because first of all we need to i think we need to be clear that Silence is not always significant. It's not always communicative. Mm -hmm. um, so, for example, in the classroom, and this is, you know, Jim, Dr. Jim King writes in his work as well, you know, a student might be silent because they're just bored or maybe they're hungry or maybe they're planning, you know, making a mental list what to buy for dinner that night. You know, we can't always assume that it's, it's significant. So we have to have that in our minds. Um it's good for students to think of that as well. You know, why, you know, why couldn't you speak well at that time? Oh, well, just before I was thinking about texting my friend and I didn't hear what the teacher said like that. Um, you know, it's not always significant. Well, that's kind of the issue that you bring up 
is yeah. that if if these students have an insecurity and they're self-labeling their silence, mm. it's just it's really it's a detrimental exercise. There's no reason to do it. Yeah, it it can be for some students very triggering. It it really can generate a lot of negative thoughts and negative self-attribution about, you know, I'm not good at English because I didn't study hard enough because I'm just not good at languages um, and on and on and on. And it comes back to this cycle that we looked at with your drinking of, you know, what you think about really does have a huge impact on then what you feel and what you do. Well, speaking of that, in the review of anxious language learners' silence section, there's a there's a sentence from the paper. Some studies found that Japanese students worry that speaking the target language in class will disturb their classmates, mm. negatively impacting their interpersonal relationship with peers. Mm. That really, I've never seen that before. I, I is that as far as you're saying? Oh, someone speaks out in English, then they're looked at like less Japanese or what does that mean? In the context of Japan, um, I mean, there's lots of arguments and theories about what learning a language means to a Japanese person's identity. And I don't really want to get into that, but I want to focus on what I have observed in classes and what I feel I can speak on. And that is, you know, for example, um, Greer's paper, which I cite the eyes of Hito, um, the way Japanese students will monitor behavior of themselves and each other. Mm. I mean, I'll give you a classic example of that. And students, I find, often don't want to ask me a question in front of the class. Mm. But the moment the bell goes and everybody's leaving, suddenly there's a rush to the front. (laughs) Yeah, I just, I I get so annoyed by that. (laughs) I tell them, please... Ask me the question during class. <laughs> I have to leave. <laughs> you know, you're, you're begging them, please, somebody ask a question. Are you sure you're okay out there? You know, are you, are you sure you're all right? And they're just kind of looking at you and you're like, I know you're not all right. <laughs> I know you're not all right. It's okay to say you're not all right. Um, uh. But, you know, you walk around the class and some of them, when you're in that one-to-one situation, they might call you over, but they don't want to ask in front of the class. Um, and I've written about that. I've found the types of examples in my own data collection. Um, they don't want to speak in front of their peers because their topic might be boring. Mm. Um, it's not always linguistic ability. It's not always, well, my pronunciation is bad, so they won't understand me, and that will be very awkward. It can be, you know, the topic. Well, what if I don't choose a topic that's interesting? They'll be bored. Mm. Um, you know, there's a lot of worries going on in some of their minds about what could go wrong if they speak and what's interesting is it it's often not because of academic evaluation you know the teacher will give me a, a low score it's they prioritize often their peers but when you think about their age you know young adults it, that's understandable mm, yeah yeah I, li- I like your answer to that um and i'm gonna I'm going to really have to do some thinking before I get deep into the PhD because what you kind of just, the way you avoided part of that question was, you know, there's a wormhole there and I don't know if I want to go down that wormhole either because then that's going to lead you outside of the language learning and that's going to lead you more towards like society and I, I, it's just, this topic is so complicated and it can pull you in lots of different directions. I think before we started recording, I think you said um, your supervisor, Dr. Jim King, said, you know, try to keep it as simple as possible with the data collection, right? That's probably yeah. good advice for people. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you want to do a quality project, but it doesn't have to be overly complex. Um, sometimes keeping it simple can produce, a, I think, a richer set of data in a way. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, I think we've gone through a lot of the fundamental aspects of the paper. And if people would like to read the paper again, it is 
reframing silence insights into language learners thoughts about silence and speaking related anxiety uh is there any any aspects of the paper you wanted to highlight or draw people's attention to i think for me it's this um it's the first reaction students often give of that you know the reason they cannot speak well they're not speaking as much as they want to is because they don't have that linguistic ability and they have a lot of self-doubt about that. But when you start going a little bit deeper, whichever approach you use, in my case it was CBT, um, you often find some other underlying factors. And, of course, you have to be very careful because, you know, we're not counsellors, we're not therapists. You keep it focused on the language learning elements. But, you know, making students aware of what else is going on um, that that can be a very helpful step for them, that awareness. Well, cool. Um, I think we, we went over a lot of uh, things today. I hope people enjoyed it. Again, the paper is Reframing Silence, Insights into Language Learners' Thoughts about Silence and Speaking-Related Anxiety. Um, soon to be Dr. Mayer's email <laughs> is on that paper. So I guess if people would like more information about the upcoming FLA uh, book, or any other projects that you're doing, can they just, I guess they can just send you an email there. Yeah, sure. Of course. I do like this new title you've given me soon to be. <laughs> <laughs> I might add that to my uh, email sign off. <laughs> when you're, uh, so when you're Dr. Mayer, are we still going to be able to have these sorts of chats or that's, that's oh, yes, those will be please. the thing of the past, the past. <laughs> yeah. No, absolutely. I would love to come back on and I want to hear more about what you're doing as well. And uh, again, thanks again for um, for being a contributing interviewer. Uh, that that door is always open as well. Oh. I'd love to, I'd actually love to hear you interview uh, Dr. Jim King at some point if you'd like, if you're up for that. <laughs> oh, um, too intimidating. Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> Not because he's um, a scary person. Just uh, I'm just a very shy person, and you know he's my supervisor, and I always. I need to do CBT to make sure, I, you know, my anxiety about looking incredibly foolish in front of him. <laughs> See, it's interesting. You mentioned that on the last show, how you were inc an incredibly shy person, but I think you're really good on the podcast. It doesn't oh, seem like you're shy on the podcast at all. I think I've definitely got better at online interactions thanks to emergency remote teaching. Um, mm. I'm a bit more comfortable with the radio DJ role that I seem to have taken <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Okay. Um, all right. So soon to be Dr. Kate Mayer. Thank you for coming back on Lost in Citations. Thanks ever so much for having me. And thank you for a lovely chat. If you'd like to contact the show, the best place to find out about us is our website, lostincitations.com. Here you can learn more about the background to this project and how you can get involved. Our hope is to help academics, educators, and online content producers get in contact with each other. Our email address is lostincitations at gmail.com. We also have Facebook and LinkedIn pages. Please rate and comment on the sites you use to download your podcasts. It helps us reach more potential listeners. But probably the most helpful thing you can do is, if you like our content, recommend it to a friend and let them know what we're trying to do. Thank you very much.